I tell you, I don't think I know any other church that runs a women's weekend like this. You are seriously blessed. And um, I just think it's really remarkable. And I, I just have such a sense of kind of togetherness, such a sense of unity um, just with you. And, and, and I just want to say this is really remarkable. You know, I visit a lot of churches in my day job, and um, I'm always on the train going somewhere. And I just think what you have here is so precious. And uh, not, not to, to take it for granted, but just to know that, that I think God is doing something remarkable here at St. Mark's, something remarkable in each one of your lives, but remarkable as a, as a group of women. And I so often encourage myself when I think, you know, oh, I just feel in the minority. I feel everything's, is anything going to change in the church? Is <laughs> anything going to change in the world I inhabit? And I'm always reminded it only took 12 disciples to rock the world. And we've got, what, 150, 200 women here? What couldn't God do through you in this next decade? And I've been, um, I know we're nearly March, aren't we? I can't believe it. But I've been, uh, at the beginning of January, I was really struggling to set my New Year's resolution. Really, really struggling. And I always have the normal ones, get fit, get, you know, eat healthily. But, I, you know, I try and set a few different ones, slightly more imaginative. And um, I just couldn't land them. And every time I went to pray about it and think about it, I just felt God was, was sort of stretching out the decade in front and saying, Sarah, no, it's not this year. It's the decade. What, what, what are you resolved to invest in for the decade? What, what do you want to see happen this decade? And, you know, I was just really struck. We're in the 2020s. And um, I just began to kept on thinking about, you know, the roaring 20s in America. And I don't know if you know much about the roaring 20s in America, but it was, it was after the war. It was post-war. And basically, America partied for a decade. I mean, they really went for it. And uh, you had, you know, the women cut their hair short, had really short skirts, and they were out drinking cocktails. And it was a revolution. And it was a revolution in music, and the radio came. Um, but what it did is it, it just changed the face of the United States in 10 years. And the United States is a big place. But in 10 years, because they got connected and suddenly there was marketing. People never had money to spend on anything. And suddenly they could buy a washing machine or they could, they could buy clothes, you know. And um, it didn't just change it for the good, but it shaped the culture. And I just wonder, as we're thinking about what's ahead, I just wonder if you ever wonder, might we dream that there could be an unprecedented move of God in this next decade in our nation? What would it look like if we could dream some dreams, faith-filled dreams, fearless dreams of what God might do in our nation? And we've looked last night a bit about God setting us free from that fear that holds us down, that limits us by being unnamed, by binding us into those things that paralyze us. And we looked a little bit this morning about what might it look like to step into faith, to activate that total trust in him, even in the waiting, even in the struggle. And for this final session, I want us to look at what might it look like if we dare to dream that God is going to send us out from fear into a faith-filled 
living. What might that look like for you? What might your daily life look like? What might daily life look like if I really stepped in to faith and said, okay, God, I'm going to trust you this decade. I'm going to trust you every day of this year, every day of next year, and I'm going to try and step out. And this story we're going to look at, the final encounter that Jesus has with this woman, she doesn't come from a churchy background, but she encounters him. And from that encounter, she is so transformed that she goes on to transform a whole community. And she could be any one of us here today. There are no limits on any of us. God is not limiting what he can do through you. We might be limiting him, but he's not limited. And if you're like me, you often think, well, it's fine. It can happen for Christine. It can happen for the person on my left. It can happen for everybody else, but not for me. But I feel God wants you to know he has a plan. He has a purpose. And it's not just for the woman that's sitting on the left or the right of you. It is for you. And he wants to send you out in power and in faith. And that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to turn to John 4. And you will probably know it, but it is the encounter of the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Okay, we're going back to Galilee, back to his home, back to the lake. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did he also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. 
What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming when has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm really sobered when I read some of the national statistics about the church. Um, as Christine said, one of my roles is that I head up the Church Revitalization Trust, and our vision is to plant as many churches as we can across this nation, that we would uh, plant churches that not only have impact, but churches that bless and love their cities, love their estates, love their towns, love their villages. Churches that don't only bring in those on the margins, but they love them in a way that is practical, serving them, like you do here with your amazing spear course and work with those in prisons. And it's a huge privilege of mine because I do get to go and visit and to see. But also, I do also get to look at the statistics quite deeply. And to tell the truth, it's pretty sobering reading. And you'll know it. They predict by 2032 that the Church of England will no longer exist. They say we're heading over a cliff. The church in existential crisis have been some of the headlines of our newspapers. And, and you know, I think that the, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back about three years ago was um, the Jeremy Paxman article in the FT. I don't know if any of you saw that, where he said that there were more supporters for the Royal Society for the Protection for Birds than there were in the church. And I tell you, I read that. I just thought, God on our watch. How could this be? And I was looking uh, last week, and in our London, in the London diocese, there are 2,000 teenagers recorded going to church. 2,000. That is it. I mean, how big is London? 2,000. And it gets worse as we go further across the nation. Fewer and fewer. We're just completely missing that younger generation they're just completely absent from church. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I just sort of think, oh God, are we that irrelevant? Where, what is it going to take to turn the tide? And then I hop on the train and I go and visit some of these churches. And I remember hearing a social commentator saying around Brexit, oh, this is a time of historic, national, unprecedented um, times. And uh, we wouldn't look back and we'll see history in the making. And do you know, I thought, yes, but there was something in me that thought, no, 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 it is historic, but for a completely different reason. For those who have eyes to see, because God is writing a different narrative in our nation. He is doing something so unseen, but you can see it when you visit churches. 
The tide is rising. You can see young people coming in and and finding home and then inviting their parents to come to their baptism services. You can see those who've always felt on the margins of church coming into food banks, finding dignity. You see those who never thought that there would be a place for them in the church. Trafficked women, women for domestic abuse, coming to something like Portsmouth Harbour Church who run the Spa 61 Women's Refuge. I mean, I could go on and on. It is phenomenal what the church is doing in this nation. Whether it's ever reported or not, God is on the move. And I wonder where we fit in. I just wonder where you see yourself in this picture in the 10 years. And I don't think that decline is our future. We're always going to be a minority. We're called by God to be the yeast in the dough. And the yeast is always tiny. But boy, is it effective. Have you ever tried to make bread without yeast? (laughs) Not good. But it is so effective that we're the salt. We are the light. And there is impact in the church. And what I love about this story of this woman is she comes from the outside. She's, She's not one of the religious elite. She's not the regular church goer. She's what we would say, she's the unchurched. And here she comes, middle of the day, we're told, 12 o'clock, to come and to take water from the well. And she has a moment, a moment with Jesus, connecting. And I, I sometimes think it's quite challenging to connect with our culture. It's quite challenging. You know, I, I find often... Um, as I said, we've got three teenage daughters and the way that they have been shaped through school, through education, through their peers, you know, they're like, we are dinosaurs in the way we think. You know, they, they, they see things in such different ways. And some of that is wonderful and imaginative, but some of it is really challenging to connect with when you're coming from a Christian perspective. How do we connect with our culture? And a a number of years ago, um, I mentioned that I ran an interior design company and I was given this dream job down in the south of France. This great client, he said, Sarah, I've got this olive farm, love you to come and design it. We're going to have like an entertainment section. There's going to be a little cinema and a big banqueting hall. I was like, yes, fantastic. So um, I just said to him, you know, the only thing is I'm not fluent in French. I'm, I'm like got really kind of school French. He said, no, 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 you'll be absolutely fine, absolutely fine. Anyway, so I used to catch the, the early morning flight, um, the red eye, down to Aix-en-Provence, and um, they'd meet me there, and then I'd go and have my site meetings. And this is how it would work. Every time I would went, I would think, okay, what are we doing today? We are doing plumbing. So I get my dictionary on the aeroplane, and I would make my list, downpipe in French, you know, what was you bend in French, you know, and that was basically how I'd managed this project. And uh, there was one week where I went, and I knew we were doing lighting. And they had this very snazzy um, company from Paris coming down to meet us. So I did everything and I wrote it all down. Get into the meeting and it's glorious and it's all beautiful with olive groves and little mini chateau and it's a world of its own. And um, so I start talking to these lighting designers and saying, oh, you're in French, la, 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 la. And they're just completely looking at me blankly like, what is she saying? So I do what I think most British people do. I started talking really slowly in French, really slowly, completely blank. 
And I did what maybe some of us then do. Started talking really loudly in French. <laughs> Completely blank. And anyway, we ended up me doing sign language. Sort of going, la ba, la la la. And they were like, so I got my vocab book out and eventually showed them what I was trying to say. And they roared with laughter. And they said, oh, oui, bien sûr. And of course, <laughs> we laughed and we got the job done. But I remember thinking, they A, didn't help me at all. Well, A, they were from Paris, and I'm sure they spoke English, but never mind. Um, but secondly, it was so lost in translation. And it made me think that sometimes we have to work quite hard to bridge that cultural gap. Sometimes we're speaking a different language. And how do we, how do we engage in our communities, with our people at work, with our friends, with our family who don't know Jesus? How do we connect? And what we're going to do is a very speedy masterclass that Jesus gives us with his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Top tips from this passage. And the first thing is that Jesus went to Samaria. I don't know if we've got the map, but um, Jesus is coming, and he's basically coming from Judea, which is down in the south, and he's moving all the way up to Galilee, and he, he doesn't have to go through Samaria. Samaria is bang in the middle. And actually, Jews always avoided Samaria. They would normally cross the Jordan, go up the East Bank, and then go straight into Galilee. But Jesus chooses intentionally to go through and into Samaria. Now, no Jew was really welcome in Samaria. There was a massive feud, conflict between Jews and Samaritans. Why would he take his disciples into Samaria? I bet they were having some conversations, those disciples, like, what are we up to now? We're in Samaria. Um, it's not a place a Jew would want to visit. They would be stepping out of their comfort zone, stepping out of a, their safety net. If you and I only ever stay in our comfort zones, in our safe places, with our wonderful, much-needed Christian friends, how are we ever going to reach our communities? How are we ever going to tell people about the good news of Jesus? And I've been so challenged over the last year as we've been given opportunities to plant churches in some pretty desperate places around the country. And we were given this amazing opportunity. We're going to be planting into two places in Wales. Come on, Wales. And... Um, you know, there's this one place, and I was like, I don't even know where that is on the map. Where is Wrexham? Anyway, it's North Wales, and it's great. But um, where is it? And, uh, and this incredible young family, taking their kids, they've never lived in Wales. They had to look it up on the map too, have committed to go and plant this church in North Wales. And they're taking their family, they're putting them into their new schools. They don't know anybody there. They've got no friends there. And... Um, it just has been such a roller coaster ride of battle and blessing, of trying to step into unfamiliar territory. And I've watched this couple, and I've just been so blown away by their faith. Blown away. And I've been challenged would I do that? Would I relocate my family on mission to somewhere that, quite frankly, you can't buy a nice coffee? I mean, it, it, you, you arrive, and it's, it, and, but they are going. They are going in there, and they are, they are committed. And the most extraordinary thing happened um, last month. Number one, we confirmed the building. That happened before Christmas. 
And the bishop phoned. He said, oh, we've got the building. It's all sorted. Guess what the address is? And we were like, what's the address? He said, it's One Hope Street. Now, come on, isn't that brilliant? I mean, if that's not a sign from God, One Hope Street, and it's a department store that um, we've purchased. And, um, but during the building works and during the refurb and things, only three of us knew that we were suddenly short of £100,000. Things had come up on the building. It's a department store, and they'd you know, be taking down all the interior walls, da da da. And um, we were like, oh, it's just another setback. It's another setback. And there'd been so many setbacks that month. And then to top it off, we had a wonderful negative article in the press about this church plant. I don't know who writes these things, but they wrote this really negative article. And I felt really low. I just was like, come on. They're an amazing couple. They're giving up their lives. They're going in. They're on mission. They don't need this. But you know what? So amazing of God. Somebody who is part of a trust fund read that negative article and they just blind emailed what they thought was an email address to get through to say, we are so moved by this young couple moving to Wrexham. We know it. We just want to donate £100,000. <laughs> and when we move out of our comfort zones, God always provides. He always provides. And what that sign has meant to that couple, I can't tell you. To the penny of what we needed. It was like God saying, I've got this. I've got this. And we've been working on a, an estate where we're really focused on planting estate churches in the most deprived areas in our nation and working with one of the estates. I remember the first time I went, maybe three years ago, and a tiny little church, you know, really scruffy, but, but really lovely. And um, no space to do any of their social transformation projects. They've run out of all the space, but really close by, massive warehouse owned by someone else. And I remember saying to the vicar, do you know what? that is the building you really need. And he was like, oh, tell me about it. We have been praying for years for that building. I was like, wow. Last year, the building came up for sale, 500,000 pounds. And we were like, oh, no, that's a quite high. Um, and we thought, okay, come on, God, we've got faith for this. And we managed to raise a little bit of money, nowhere close to that, tiny bit of money, and uh, went into year-long negotiations on this building highs, lows, is it happening? No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's on. Brilliant. No, it's not. It's off. And the roller coaster went. And uh, over Christmas, it all fell through. And I, I remember going into Christmas thinking, oh, God, they, you know they need that building for mission. You know they need it for their youth work. You know they need it for their debt advice and their food bank. And come on, it's the only building. It is literally the only building that there could possibly be. And um, at the end of January, I met the vicar again. And he said, Sarah, you've got to sit down. So you, and I said, no, no, fine, fine. You know, sit down. So I sat down. And he said, uh, over Christmas, the owners had huge deliberations. They were having a nightmare from the council, nightmare from the local residents. And they held an emergency trustees meeting. And they basically all agreed that it was going to take far too long. It was going to take like another year of negotiations. So they phoned the vicar and they said, we'd like to give you the building for free. When we step out of our comfort zones, he provides. He provides. So Jesus goes to Samaria. And I wonder where our areas of Samaria, and I'm not saying he's calling you to the ends of the earth. You might be. But, but, but there are places where we feel uncomfortable, don't we? 
Don't ignore them because God can use you in them. Secondly, more specifically, Jesus goes to the well. You can still go to Jacob's well today. You can still go, it's still in Israel and and see it. And he's been traveling with the disciples. It's been a long day. He must be exhausted, high sun. He's, you know, um, thirsty. And his disciples go off to get packed lunch. He could have gone with them. He could have gone and had a picnic on the hills. He could have done all sorts of things. But he goes specifically to this one well. And when he comes to the well, the Samaritan woman comes. And it is such a taboo. I mean, it's such a taboo for him, a Jewish man, to even engage in conversation with a Samaritan woman. We're back to this whole unclean thing and defiled. And, and she, was, she was not seen as... She was seen as somebody else's property. She was seen as a, a, as a lesser person. She is seen as a lower-class citizen. And um, she's a woman who's not supposed to be out in public by herself. But we know that she's ostracized from the community, from the other women who collect the water in the shady times of the day. And she's forced to go by herself at the hottest time of the day to collect the water because of the shame that she carries from these five ex-husbands. And we're not going to go into it, but it's just worth noting that these five men who've been her husband, she must have been a beautiful woman. But they, they could only divorce her if they abandoned her. She hasn't walked away from them. They have walked away from her because that is the only way it happened in that culture. And yet Jesus smashes through every barrier when he comes to talk to her. He doesn't see the gender barrier. He is invisible to it. It means nothing to him and it means nothing to us. It is not a barrier for us. And it's not a barrier for Jesus with any of us here. He, second, he, he smashes through the race barrier. That, that ethnic diversity, that, that, that wasn't something into marriages. It was very much, you are a Samaritan, I am a Jew, never the train shall meet. And she even says to him, she says, I don't understand you. Why are you asking me for a drink? You're clearly a Jew, and I'm clearly a Samaritan woman. What are you doing? But Jesus doesn't see that cultural inferiority. It doesn't even come on his radar, because he sees the woman. He sees her heart. He sees what she's been through. He sees the isolation. And he's so full of compassion for her that he's not going to let the the cultural norms of the day hold him back from reaching out to her. He smashes through the race barrier. And one of the things that I, I love at the moment, there's a, there's a new stream in the Church of England, a, a Peter stream, we're calling it, to raise up young men and women who feel a call of God on their lives, who are ethnically diverse, educationally diverse, socioeconomically diverse, who have never seen people like them in leadership positions on the platform. And God is raising up exceptionally talented young men and women. And I, I just say, watch this space in the next 10 years to see what is happening in the Church of England because it is going to look different because there's an injustice that is being reversed. And aren't we called to be the most diverse people? Look at Revelation, every tongue and tribe and nation 
neither Greek or Jew or male or female. We are, we have got the call to be able to be on the cutting edge of bringing diversity together in a way that I don't see it brought together in any other setting than by the church. He smashes the race barrier. And then he does the same with the religious one. And they have this debate, don't they? And she talks about, oh, don't you want to worship? We want to worship on the hill and you worship in Jerusalem. Or what does that mean? But what I love about Jesus is that he's not distracted by that. He just asks her, will you give me a drink? And it's an innocuous question, isn't it? It's a drink. He's thirsty. They're by a well. But what he's asking, he's asking for her cup. She says to him, you haven't, got any, you haven't brought anything to the well to, to draw the water. How on earth can I give you a drink? She's not in her wildest dreams imagining that Jesus is going to say, can I share your cup? She's shocked, but Jesus isn't. Not only does he come close, he becomes personal. He says, I don't want to just talk to you. I want to share life with you. And that's what he says to us. He doesn't want to just have an impersonal relationship. He doesn't want to just talk or just pray at him. He wants to be up close and personal with each one of us, with each one of you. He's motivated by such compassion for this woman. But he also smashes through probably the one that she's trying to hide, that moral barrier. That one, and, and, and you know, don't we do it? Don't we, don't we set those standards? We might set them for us, but we can set them for other people. Of, you know, what, what is acceptable and what's, oh, just not quite. And, you know, but he knows she's had a checkered past. He knows she's had five husbands and she's on her sixth. And he doesn't take that moral, religious high ground. He so could have. He does quite the opposite. He sees her, her vulnerability. He sees her as a beautiful woman. And Jesus always does that. He always sees potential. You know, he doesn't see Saul as the, the big persecutor of the church, you know, the big enemy of the church. He sees him as a future great church leader and planter. He doesn't see Zacchaeus as the kind of embezzler, fraudulent, you know, fraudulent um, tax embezzler. He sees him for what he's been made to be. And it's the same every encounter with Jesus. I encourage you to look at them with a prostitute, with those who are on the margins, with the leper, with those that society would say, you haven't hit the mark. You are well below. You're beneath me. And therefore, I'm not going to give you my time. Jesus, he kind of pursues them. He goes straight after them. He hangs around with them. And he sees them as friends. Do we see what God has put in those around us? Even those we may struggle with. Those we may think, oh, you know, tricky lifestyle, tricky behavior. How do we respond? 
four weeks ago, I was on a, a five o'clock train from Derby to St Pancras, and I was on the train station, and I got this announcement where I'm sorry to say that the five o'clock train is delayed due to unruly behaviour on the train. And I was like, unruly behaviour on the train? I was like, leaves on the tracks, I get, but unruly behaviour? I was like, did I really hear that? It was freezing cold, and it was delayed. So I was standing on the platform what felt like ages, and as I was standing there, I sort of noticed there were a few policemen standing on the, on the platform with me. I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. I always love, love it when the police are there. I feel quite safe. And um, chatting about the weather. And anyway, the train came in, and I could see it was absolutely packed. And I was thinking, I'm not going to get on, and I'm not going to miss the last train back to London. Da, da, da. Anyway, I had my little wheelie case, because I had just been at a, a lecture by Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. So I was feeling very holy, and I took my little case, and as the doors opened off this train... All I could smell was beer and urine, literally. And I was like, I've got to get on, got to get on. And so I, I literally got on like this with the case, sort of kept the case between me. And there was one other woman in this carriage, and the next carriage was open, and I could see this. It was absolutely heaving with football supporters. I mean, heaving. The, the beers, I mean, all over the ta every table, all over the floor. I mean, there wasn't, you couldn't see a bit of floor anywhere and uh, they were chanting and they were singing and you know having come from my holy moment um it was quite a shock and um I then actually saw our New Testament lecturer hop on behind but I didn't see him again but I knew he was somewhere on the train I think I wonder how he's getting on with this anyway and so off we set and I won't go into the graphic details of the behavior as suffice it to say they thought it was hugely funny to um maybe pull down their trousers past every single station we went through. So I was sort of standing there saying, Lord, Lord, what am I going to do? And, um, and anyway, it, it got worse, and the journey got worse, and we, I had to stand because they'd taken all the seats. And uh, then we get to another station, and I see three lovely Chinese tourists decide to get on our train. And I'm going, don't do it. Don't get on, don't get on the train. I'm literally going, don't do it. I'm thinking, this is, this is getting even worse. And I just knew what was going to happen. Anyway, these three lovely Chinese tourists got on the train. The whole train kicked off. We had the whole coronavirus. They all started coughing out loud. You know, the whole, it was just, it was the most unpleasant, horrible moment. And I, I, I just, um, I felt really ashamed to be British. I felt really ashamed. And... Um, but I could see these three, and I thought, this is going to get really ugly. They're going to... And they had tickets, but they wouldn't be allowed to sit down. And so anyway, I just thought, OK, I've got to do something. So I found myself moving through the carriage to go and get the three Chinese tourists and um, apologised profusely, at which point all of the football supporters heard my voice. And you can imagine, it wasn't quite the same accent as their voice. So we're like, ooh, ooh, we got posh one. I was like, oh, this is getting worse. So I was trying to move them through to first class to say, I'm so sorry, I think you'll be safer if you stay in first class. Open the doors of first class, and there was a whole nother lot in first class. So, and I, so I sort of put them by the bins, and, um, and I said, just stay here by the bins. Really sorry, it won't be long. We've got two hours, you know. And uh, anyway, and, um, and then I sort of felt, you know, this is not acceptable. And I said, where, where are your tickets? Which, what numbers are they? And I felt I got a bit headmistressy. And, um, and anyway, I saw these people sitting there. I said, come on, just give them their seats. 
these people are visiting, they've paid for their seats, and they were like, anyway, I won't tell you what I said. Anyway, I tried, but I couldn't do anything. Then I had to shuffle back to where I'd been, at which point they were like, oi, what's your name? So I said, oh, my name's Sarah. And they were like, oi, Sarah, Jeff has gone to the loo, sit down. And I was like, I was like, no, thank you, no, thank you, I'm quite all right here, thank you. And they're like, sit, and then they were like, sit, 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 sit. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna sit. So I sit in Jeff's chair. Jeff comes out of the loo, Jeff, Jeff, and he's like, what the, are you doing in my seat? That's my gear under that seat. And I look under my seat, and it's like a bag full of what I can only imagine is contraband. Uh, it's got it. And I'm like, oh, oh, Jeff, please have your seat back. I wouldn't want to, you know. And anyway, it went on like this. For, we, and by the end, I got to know them. I was chatting to them about their life. And they were like, so, so, who do you support? What, what, what? And I was like, oh, I don't actually support anyone. And they were like, no one. And, and I knew where they supported. So I said, Millwall? And the whole carriage went, Millwall, Millwall, Millwall. And, and anyway, I have never been so happy to arrive at St Pancras. We had a police escort. All the shops were closed. And I texted Tom during the, during the I said, darling, just to say, if I don't get back, I might have been stabbed. But if I do get back, I'm sure this will make a great sermon illustration, is what I said. Anyway, two weeks ago, I was in a taxi going to an event and chatted to the taxi driver. And I said, oh, have you got a long night ahead? He said, oh, no, no, I'm clocking off because I'm taking my son, my grandson, to the football. I said, oh, who do you support? He goes, Millwall. I said, funny you should say that. That is the only football team I know something about. I've had some personal experience. And he goes, I know, I was in first class. <laughs> what is the likelihood of all the taxi drivers in the whole of London? And I went bright red, but you know, in that split second, I thought they were watching me. I, I was doing the whole moral, I can't believe I'm on this, they're so... This is just despicable behaviour. I mean, it was despicable behaviour. But, but, uh, but I had taken the moral high ground while I, in my mind, they didn't know that because I thought I might be beaten up. Um, but, but at that moment, they'd watched me and he'd watched me. He said, you were with the Chinese. I said, yes, I was. And, and, and it just made me realise we are the salt and light. Now, I didn't preach them. I didn't, I'm afraid to say I didn't invite them on the ALF course. Um, but, but, but they were watching. And, and people watch us. We don't know. But, but there is something. And, and, and when we go into uncomfortable situations, it's so easy to, 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 to be lovely and prayerful at church. But then suddenly we find ourselves in a confronting situation. And, and that kind of religious morality comes out. But Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't do it with her. He loves her. And he gives her space. The other thing he does. Can you imagine? The son of God. He's got quite a big mission. You know, if I were him, I think I'd been doing a long, a long journey up to Galilee. I think it's hot. I'm, I'm probably got low blood sugar. I don't think it's the time for me to engage in a conversation. I think it's probably the time for me to think about the big mission that God has called me on and how it's working out. You know, maybe just have a little space, you know, do it. And, uh, but he does quite the opposite. 
He doesn't ostracize himself. He doesn't take himself. Instead, he gives her time. And you know, we are so busy, aren't we? But God always has time for you. He's probably the only person who will have constant time for you. Always there for us. Always ready to listen to us. To fill us. To guide us. And I was very struck when I was looking at Jesus' encounter and giving her time by just my daily life. And I wonder about how you find it. But, you know, I find that I'm sometimes less interested in the lady at Sainsbury's who's packing my bag than I am of checking my phone. Do I engage in a conversation with her? Filling up the petrol of the car. You know, I'm probably thinking, oh, is the cash point open? Rather than actually talking to the cashier. I've got the same person at the Tube who I see so often. You know, it must be such a boring job for him. Do I, do I even notice him? He's sort of invisible. And I wonder how many people we've got in our lives, our daily routines, we don't even have to go looking for people. It's so easy in this city to encounter people all the time. We, you know, Jesus went to the well. He knew people would be at the well. He went to a place where he knew people would gather. Where are your wells? If you work, where do people congregate at work? Do they go out for lunch together? Is it by the photocopier? Is it, is it in the staff room? Where do people gather? Because that's where Jesus would go. If you're at home, if you're looking after a family, where, where do people like you gather? Is it in the coffee shop? Because we have such a precious gift to pe give people. And maybe God is challenging, he's certainly challenging me to maybe step into an uncomfortable zone. When I'm tired and I think, oh, I've got so much big strategy to do, he might just be calling me to have that one conversation and that time with that one person, like he did with the Samaritan woman. I uh, had this lovely potential donor who wanted to uh, give some money. And um, I was telling him about our vision and about the churches and what God is doing. And he said, oh, yeah, that's all very well. <clears throat> he said, I'm not, not, not really interested in that. That's all a bit slick. Not really so interested in it. All very glossy and, you know, planting into Russell Group universities. Mm, that's not my thing. He said, I'm far more grassroots. And I, I said to him, oh, oh totally understand. I said, before you make a decision, will you come on a trip with me? Can I have one day of your time? And he was like, maybe. So I said, we can go on the train, back on the train, and, um, and I'd love to take you to an estate plant. So I then, I then got to the point whereby it was the day we were going to go, and I was thinking, I don't really know this man. We're, we're going down, to the, traveling down to, to this church, and what's he going to make of it? And um, we arrived at one of these estates and a really deprived area, really, really tough. And, um, uh, you know, it's one of the high up on one of those indices levels. And we arrived there and as we came into the little church, we met the person who ran the debt advice center. And he talked about some of the circumstances that people were living in. And then we met the youth worker. 
And she said, oh, I'm, I'm setting up for later tonight. I'm setting up youth group. And I said, oh, is that fun? Is it good? And she said, yes, but I just have to make sure that all the furniture is in exactly the same space. And I looked across with this chap I was with, and um, it was all like soft play. And I said, is this the youth? Is this, this isn't the creche? She said, no, no, this is the youth. And she then went on to explain that the youth on this estate, you normally can... Um, gauge attainment levels by boys' GCSEs. These boys have got no GCSEs. They had a whole cohort who just didn't get any. And she said, the thing is, is that normal youth groups, you want to up the energy. She said, with ours, we have to have everything identical every week because they have such trauma in their lives that if everything isn't stable here, if it's not quiet, calm, we have soft, tactile things for them to hold, to sit, their life is so chaotic that we want to be the one secure place. And I looked at this man, and I could see him welling up, and I was feeling a bit weepy too. And we then, um, she said, but come, because um, the school buses are all being dropped off, and they bus the kids out from the estate, and they come back at four o'clock. And every afternoon, uh, this youth worker sets up a trestle table and has 100 hot chocolates during winter, 100 smoothies in the summer, and they just welcome the kids. And so I was standing with this chap, and um, literally, it was like a tsunami of kids in their school uniforms ran, grabbed hot chocolates, and they just took over the church. And I thought, you know, that is why this church is so scruffy and so wonderful, because they feel at home. They just feel so at home. And it was one of the most moving encounters. And it, it went on. I mean, I, I think he sort of thought I'd set it up because we then met somebody being homeless and then had been employed by the church to look after it. And had, I mean, it was just the most extraordinary. We went for a cup of tea later that day. And he said, Sarah, I'm all in. What do you need? It had gone from being transactional to being personal. He had seen it. And while we keep transactional and keep it limited and our relationships not connected and not seeing those who are around us, it will never get personal. But boy, Jesus gets personal. And when it gets personal, people respond and we see transformation. And I want to encourage us, whatever context we find ourselves in during the week, wherever you are, to ask God to open your eyes. Ask him to show you who it is that he wants you to connect with. Who it is that it's just that might be that one little word. And can I say that it may not be a dramatic encounter like the woman at the well who, who goes off and she basically evangelizes the whole of the community. Uh, she's transformed. She says, come and meet the man who told me everything about my life that I've ever done. It may be that. And there may be moments, but, you know, it might be drip, drip, drip. Just the kind word every week to that person in the office. The patience when everybody else is losing their, their rag with them and you're just, you're just watching their back for them. I don't know what it's going to be in your context, but Jesus knows everything about you, about me. But Jesus can also whisper those words that come, I think, just so beautifully. Those little thoughts that come into our mind. I don't know if you, you, you recognize them, but those little thoughts. Oh, should I, should I just tell that person about my relationship with my dad? I wonder if that would help them. Oh, should I send that person that book? Those little thoughts, you know, we think it's just us. 
But I so often think it's the Spirit working through us and asking God for those opportunities, those faithful opportunities of, of touching and, and bringing Jesus personally into people's lives. Our city, this neighborhood, wherever you live, doesn't know Jesus. 98% of our nation don't know who he is. They wouldn't even recognize him. And yet we have such a privilege to be able to carry this message of hope. And it's not burdensome. And I don't want to lay any false guilt on any of us. Of, oh, I've got to be a better Christian and tell everybody about Jesus. I am not saying that. But what I'm saying is what you are by being who you truly are, the woman that God has created you to be, the woman who has broken that power of fear through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is engaging in faith, will be the most attractive, fully alive woman that our friends and those who don't know Jesus have ever seen. And don't underestimate it to be fully who you are in Christ. And you can reach people that nobody else can reach. And I wonder if, as we come to a close, as we look at this year ahead, as you set, you may have set your goals, well done. But I wonder if we can look at this decade ahead. How might God want to use you individually? What dream might he be putting on your heart? It might be huge. It might be just one small step. It might be that you've decided you're going to trust him. That small step, but so profound. And then what is he going to do through you women at St. Mark's? Because, you know, it is so brilliant to be together. But God calls us and sends us out. It's our source of strength being together. It's something profound and beautiful, but it's for what? What is it for? It's for the sake of the nation. It's for the sake of our neighbor. It's for the sake of the woman at the corner shop. It's for the sake of the mom who just is just, thinks she's blown it again with her kids and we meet at school. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to press in, to hold on to that tassel that Jesus offers to bring transformation and freedom in your life because hurdles will come and we'll need to do it again and again. Be quick to dive in and grab it. I want to encourage you to, to, do, a, a rain, to do a stock take from time to time, am I letting those grave clothes back on? Are there new ones that are trying to stick to me? Things I'm saying about myself or others are. And I want to encourage us to know that God has a purpose and a plan and he wants to send us out. And wherever you are, even on a train full of football supporters, <laughs> Wherever you are, whatever context you find yourself, you are going as his ambassador. You are going in his name and he fills you with his spirit to bring transformation and new life. So 
go for it. Go for it. Amen.